Thank you so much. Through the years as a pastor and a preacher, there are moments where I say, you know, I just need to go home. We've worshipped. We, it's, it's all downhill from here. Yeah, those songs that we've sung just have lifted my heart into the presence of God. You know, there's this sense of every once in a while in a preacher's ministry, there's a doxological moment where just praise sweeps through his soul and he says, I can't say anything more. And when we really worship, our hearts lifted up. There were so many things going through my mind as I was singing along and worshiping with you. Uh, the song, 10,000 Reasons, uh, I've, I heard that with 3,000 people in New York City about a month ago from all around the world, something called Movement Day. I was in Seoul, Korea at the world's largest Presbyterian church. Now, it's not the biggest one in Korea. It only has 80,000 members, but, you know, it's pretty big. Uh, and they were singing that song. And there was a story that was told there that really struck me. The senior pastor there, Pastor John O, oh, said, uh, I had a friend who's a missionary from our church who was in, in Japan. And while he was in Japan, he was up at the top of a very high-rise building. And it was one of those days when one of those earthquakes came. And everything began to shake. And he was, and he was swinging all the way back and forth. And the missionary said, Lord, this is it. I'm going home. And he said, what in the world? These are, these are my last words I'm going to say on earth. What am I going to do? And he said, this is my song when I see the darkness coming. 10,000 reasons. And he sang that song. I thought, isn't that great? We all have to memorize that so we know what our last words will be. Because when we close our lips here, that's what we're going to say when we get to heaven. Uh, why is it like this? It's because Jesus Christ brought something that's so extraordinary into the world that the world has never known. And that is authentic, pure, unadulterated love. You know, I'm, this is the first opportunity I've ever had to be at Alden Union Church last Sunday and this week. What a joy. And then as I looked at your charter, I realized, well, you, you guys go back a long time. And yet there's this church in Seoul, Korea that... You've never had any contact with this movement day up in New York. With a, this is 2,000 years after Jesus and his movements all over the world. Why is that possible? Because we have touched the greatest, most extraordinary reality that this world will ever know. And that is the love of God. It is greater than anything. In our study, we have been thinking about the greatest, the word, the theological word, that which is the greatest of all things. Amazingly, last Sunday, we learned that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is you because you have faith in Jesus Christ. The greatest in the kingdom is whoever becomes like a child and trusting in the child that God sent, the one we're going to celebrate in just a few weeks is great birth. Uh, on the Sunday evening, we were reminded then if he's the greatest one, we're to have the greatest commandment that comes from God the Father, and that is to love God with all that we are, heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second greatest commandment is to love our neighbors ourselves. Why is that so? Because God is love. That is who he is in his absolute perfect nature. And so it makes sense that the way we would live our lives is by loving, giving of ourselves, of our strength, of what we possess to do good to another. 
That's love. We do that for God. We take the strength and blessings we have and we return them to God. And then midweek on Wednesday night, we were reminded that Jesus takes the first and second great commandment and personalizes them because John is looking at the work of the gospel now in light of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. The Upper Room Discourse tells us all the things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke did not record that Jesus said in that extraordinary moment, the the work of the parakletos, the comforter, the counselor, the Holy Spirit that's poured out. And so Jesus says, the greatest love, no greater love than this, is that a man would give his life for his friend. And we learned that God's absolute holiness which is as absolute as his love, is met by Christ coming to die for friends who are not really friends but enemies. We realize that the greatest expression of love is Jesus Christ himself. He is the one who came and laid down his life that we might live. He is the one who died for us while we were yet sinners. And that his example then is how we fulfill the first and second great commandment. We need to love like Jesus loved. And that brings us then to this Sunday morning where I'd like us to look uh, at this time at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, a passage that uh, is much easier to preach at a wedding than it is just about any other time because the reality of the world breaks in and we realize these are hard words to live. I'm going to ask us to listen as I read now from 1 Corinthians 13, and I'll read through from verse 4 to verse 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So, now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three But the greatest of these is agape, love. Let's pray. Father, would you graciously minister to our hearts today? Would you speak to us in the only way we will truly change, and that is by your inward grace that shapes our heart, soul, mind, and strength to long for you above all the things of this world. Meet with us, we pray, for your glory. Illumine our hearts and minds to your truth. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, you remember that 1 Corinthians is Paul's letter to his troubled church plant. Now, one of the things I'm glad about Alden Union, you've never had any troubles here. This has been a 
problem-free church, just like my congregations. We've never had any problems. That is, we forget them as quickly as we can once we get through them, right? So in a fallen world, nothing goes perfectly. Even a community built on love has its problems. There's no problem-free home, no problem-free business, no problem-free country, no problem-free church. And so it's interesting that first and second Corinthians are actually misnumbered. Do you know that 2 Corinthians should actually be 3 Corinthians? Paul talks about a letter that he had written. It was a painful letter, uh, a letter that in Presbyterianism, I don't know if you use our jargon, but we talk about executive session. You know, things you say, okay, we're not going to talk. Only the leaders are going to talk about this. And there are documents that go into executive session. And then you decide at the end, are we going to read this out of executive session or is this going to be kept behind closed doors? Well, apparently 2 Corinthians was not read out of executive session by the Holy Spirit. It was kept and it was inspired. I'm sure it was God's word written by an apostle, but it's gone. So we have 1 Corinthians and 3 Corinthians, but we don't have 2 Corinthians. So we decided to call 3 Corinthians 2 Corinthians. But the whole point of that is that this is a troubled church. Paul begins writing in chapter 1 about all the conflicts. You know, there was already politics in the church. I, I'm after Apollos. I'm after Paul. I'm after I'm super spiritual. I'm after Jesus. And then there's the conflicts that begin to take place over other issues like, is it all right for we Corinthians to... Uh, kind of buy our meat from the meat market, which is really at the sacrificial center where all the pagan gods are worshipped. Is that legal? Can we do that? Did you know that the word to be a Corinthian in Greek meant to be someone that was drunken and sexually active in their worship? It's pretty extraordinary. This was right on that isthmus of Greece, right where it goes to the narrow area where the Today, there's a canal that's been carved through. It was a way where the ships would all come in, they would unload so they didn't have to sail all the way around the south of the Greek peninsula. It was filled with all kinds of debauchery and drunkenness and carnality. And it was codified in the Acropolis in the high place where there were thousands of prostitutes that were there for you to worship the gods. This was a pagan city. No wonder they struggled with sexual sin. That's part of the problem of the church. And then there were other issues going on, such as they were fighting over the love meal at the church. Isn't that amazing? The love meal, the agape meal, was like the potluck supper. <clears throat> we should call it the providence supper of the church. As they came together to have the Lord's Supper, they would have a meal, and then they would have the Lord's Supper. And they were all the food was gone before some people showed up. People who didn't love you, they just... I don't know if all the donuts appeared at work day this weekend before everybody got some or not, but, you know, it was supposed to be. I won't ask that question. But I didn't show up, so I can't preach about that, right? I didn't come to work day. But the bottom line is that here's this problem where they're fighting where they're supposed to be loving because of the love of Christ. And this church is filled with spiritual gifts. There are all these wonderful gifts of the Spirit. We call them the charismatic gifts, the gifts of the grace of the Spirit. Uh, was there prophecy? Was there the ability to foreknow the future? Was there speaking in tongues? Was there healing? 
all kinds of gifts. And people were proud about having the greatest gifts. And some people even denied the resurrection, said we can't believe in a bodily resurrection. We can believe in a spiritual resurrection. But this idea of a bodily resurrection just doesn't work. We don't believe it. This is a problematic church. And so into this context, as we begin to narrow in where we are in chapter 13, Paul now has begun to explain in this discussion of the spiritual gifts. What are the greatest gifts? What are the gifts that are better than any other? This church exists because of the gospel, because of Jesus Christ crucified, buried, risen, having ascended to heaven, having poured out the Spirit, having brought together unbelievers into a communion of saints. And they're now endowed with the Spirit, but they're filled with arrogance and struggle because of their alleged spirituality. And Paul will tell us in chapter 12 that we need to realize that the gifts, whatever they may or may not be in our lives, are designed to be different from one person to the next, And that diversity is good because that diversity is what makes the body of Christ a reality. Now, I've gotten to know a little bit about Pastor Paul Thompson's humor. Now, if everybody had that sense of humor, you know, your worship service would never start. You'd all be trying to one-up somebody with the next best joke or pun, right? No, you've got to have different people with different skills. That's part of it. And so he actually grounds that in the physical body. He he raises this humorous picture. Imagine if the body were just a big eye. Have you ever meditated on that? Okay, okay, you're now just a big eye. You wake up in the morning, it's very easy to roll out of bed. It's really easy to bounce down the stairs. And you get to the kitchen table and you say, man, how am I going to open my box of Cheerios? I got to peel a banana. How how am I going to do this? In fact, how am I going to swallow it? I mean, the image is extraordinarily simple but powerful. He said, if the whole body were an eye, you'd be dead. Isn't it great you have hands and feet that can't see anything but can make sure the eye has food so it can see? And so he begins to remind us that diversity makes unity possible. And unity mandates diversity. It's wonderful that we're all different. And our differences only make sense when they come together to do something bigger than ourselves. It's an extraordinary insight. And he says that's what the gifts of the Spirit are supposed to do. And so when you think about it, do you remember the last time you stubbed your toe? Now, hopefully that's been a long time ago, but maybe you did it recently. Okay. Do you remember what happens when you stub your toe? All of a sudden, your eyes get sympathetic and they start crying. Your other foot starts getting uh, some kind of... And your voice goes and you're moving all over. It's because everything is sympathizing with that one place of pain and you're all involved. All the whole... Everybody cares. The unity is felt in the single pain. It's only the toe that's hurting. You know, when I stub my toe, I don't tell my eyes, don't cry, it's just a toe. I don't say, don't worry about it, just keep on. i, I got to stop and pay attention. My whole body gets involved. My eyes look, my hands touch it, and I, I have to go do something. That's the way the body, why, what is that? 
Paul says that's love. There's no man that does not love his own body, but he nourishes and feeds it. That's what he says when he's talking about marriage and the husband and wife being one flesh, being an expression of love. The body cares for itself is an expression of love. And so in this passage, then, as we are talking about the gifts, the unity of the body, there's problems with some people saying, I'm more holy than others because I have these gifts. Paul is going to tell us, if you want spiritual gifts, and this church may have a view that all the gifts have ceased, maybe some will say, well, there's occasion they can act. Uh, I'm not going to debate that today. I personally believe that the glossolalia speaking in tongues and the extraordinary spiritual gifts were intentionally given for the early church to establish its authenticity over against the temple worship of Israel. That the resident Christ was saying, this is where the Spirit has come. It's in the church. This is the reality. Now, we'll disagree about that. We'll debate it. Some will agree, some won't. But the bottom line is that Paul says something we all ought to agree about. He said, if you're going to care about spiritual gifts, get the greatest gift. The greatest gift, do you hear what he says? Is in verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. He said, more important than anything else in the church's life as it expresses being great in the kingdom with Christ, as being one who's seeking to love God as the greatest commandment, love our neighbor, the greatest commandment, to love as Christ's love because of his greatest loving sacrifice, it says that love should now capture us. It should be what we seek above all the things that we do. And so we begin to look very narrowly at these words. It says, so now faith, hope, and love abide. Isn't it interesting he doesn't say now healing, speaking in tongues, and prophecy abide? No. No faith, hope, and love abide. He's saying here are the greatest, most important things that we should put our energies into, that we should care about most. These three, but among these three, which are so extraordinary, the greatest of these is agape, the Agape love, we've been talking about, it is the self-denying of oneself to do good to another. So we begin to ask ourselves, can we think for a moment, what is faith? Faith is one of the triumvirate of the greatest gifts that God has given. Faith has often been defined by three great properties. It is notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Okay, three Latin words have often been used. Ascensus, we, we can see it. it's assent. Faith is agreeing. Yeah, th- this is true. Notitia says, I, I know what I, I'm talking about. I, there's something I know, and I'm agreeing it's true. Fiducia is the idea of trusting it. It's depending upon it. And we live with faith all the time. You know, there are those who say, I, I'm not a person of faith. In fact, we use the language of people of faith. Well, if you drive on any road in Philadelphia, you are a person of faith. Isn't that true? Okay. When you get on an airplane, as I often have to do, you know, I'm 
My wife is a white-knuckle flyer. She's holding on to those armrests all the way across the ocean, trying to keep the plane from going down. Uh, I finally given up. I said, if it was going down, I, I, I have faith in the plane. I have faith in aerodynamics. I, I have faith in the pilots up there. I have faith in the radar systems. I have faith in the people who put the plane together and serviced it. I can't. It's faith. We live with faith every day. Faith is knowing something, assenting to its truth, and then depending upon it. When you fly on a plane, you are depending on so many things. Even an atheist who says there's no God has faith. He can't prove there's no God. That is his faith structure. That is one of the greatest hope. If faith deals with the present where we are right now and how we deal, hope is looking into the future. Hope is when our longings for that which is not connects with with a future belief that someday what we long for will become a reality. Hope is saying something better is going to come. I heard a few glimmers of hope in some of the comments today. This is winter, but spring is coming, right? It's not here yet. We're hopeful, okay? I think I heard the pastor have a little bit of hope. Maybe the last bag of leaves will really be picked up maybe next week. That's hopeful. It's not here yet. Hope is looking at, and you know, everybody has hope. There's something we long for that we desire that's not here. And it doesn't matter what your worldview is. There's this longing for the future. And so hope is extraordinarily important. Hope is one of the things that keeps us going in the adversities that we face. Say, there's something, and I'm waiting for it. I believe in it. And hope is uplifting. Faith is very much right now. Hope is future-oriented. But what's interesting when he says, now there's faith, hope, and love, that they abide. These are things that last. Love is extraordinary because Love not only deals with the here and now, and love not only deals with the future, but love is very concerned with the past. In fact, love transcends everything. It is the eternal reality. Why? God is love. Remember we talked about God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and his love reflects that. It's an eternal love. And so love is God's doing good to us from all the way in the past. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as sons, Paul will say in Ephesians 1. Love is the reason that there is a world. God loved his son and said, someday you're going to save the people in the world we create. Love was already working, eternally past. Jesus' prayer, Father, love them even as you loved me before the foundation of the world. Love is eternal. Love is present. It's love that maybe brought you here today. You had so many other duties and so many busy things. You said, I love the Lord. I'm going to come and worship today. That's love that brings you here. And love is what keeps you looking to the future. You say, isn't it amazing that someday the love of God will bring me into eternity where I'll continue to love him forever and ever without end. So faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So as we take that idea then of love being the greatest of all things, 
Love sends Christ in the world. Love is the way we're to treat others. Love is what enabled the kingdom to even exist so that we could be in God's beloved Son and be in His kingdom. What we now need to do is to look at 1 Corinthians 13. And here's a homework assignment for you to do. But let's let's just look at the verses that we've read. And let's start at verse 4 where it says, Love is patient and kind. Can we do a substitute here? Could we say, God is patient and kind. God does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. God does not insist on his own way. God is not irritable or resentful. God does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but God rejoices with the truth. God bears all things. God believes all things. God hopes all things. God endures in all things. God never ends. Now, there's faith, hope, and God, and abide in these three, but the greatest of these is God. Now, that's an interesting myth. God is love. Now, could we go another step and, and go back and let's read it this way? Christ, who is sent by God the Father. Christ is patient and kind. Christ does not envy or boast. Christ is not arrogant or rude. Christ does not insist on his own way. Christ is not irritable or resentful. Christ does not rejoice at wrongdoing. But the Lord Jesus Christ rejoices with the truth. The Lord Jesus bears all things. He believed all things of his Father right through the cross, right through the tomb, right through the resurrection. Christ hoped for God's will. Christ endures all things. Now there's faith, hope, and Christ. And the greatest of these is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is where it gets painful. Can we go in there and now put our names in there? Because are we not followers of God, redeemed by him? Are we not united to Christ? Are we not in the kingdom? Are we not taught the first and second great commandment? Are we not to reflect Christ, the great sacrifice where he gave his life for his friends? This is the greatest. And this is more important than anything else we'd ever do, it seems to be the suggestion. This is like God. It's like Christ. It's what we should be. So how about this morning trying to get to church at 9 o'clock? Were you patient and kind? Wow, there have been a lot of Sunday mornings where I already blew that one, trying to get out with my family. Uh, Love does not envy or boast. You're driving to church and you see a new member that just drew, drove up into the churchyard and they have a brand new car and you have your old jalopy and you start envying. Why did they have a new car and I don't? Am I arrogant? In other words, am I one of those people like Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 12 and said, well, I'm the eye. I'm much better than the ears. The ears can't see a thing. They're They're blind. Or I'm a hand, not a foot. A foot just has to walk on the dirty ground. Hands can play the piano, the guitar, can write, can do keyboard. I'm better than the next person. Is there any of that? Superiority? That's not love. Love is not or rude. You know, rude means something that there's there's no kindness, politeness, civility, respect. How about the way you've been talking about politics for the last 18 months? Have you always been civil? Always been respectful? 
Or have you been a little bit rude? And how can you vote for that person in light of this? Oh, wait a second. Love is not rude. Love is not insisting on its own way. Is there the ability to be principled and yet honorably cooperative where you can? There's some things we can't compromise, but there's so many things that we really care about that if we found a way, we could respect the principle and honor the person that we disagree with. Is there any sense of godly compromise? Compromise can be wicked, but compromise can be loving. You know, one of the things I learned early on uh, in when I got married is that the compromise that would make me my marriage happiest is if I didn't control the thermostat in the car. You ever notice that? I've yielded completely. I, now look, I like to be warm. I like to be cool. I like to be comfortable. But I said, my, my life is so much better when I say, no, no, whatever you want is good for me. Okay. Do we have the wisdom to... That's love. Love is saying, I don't have to have my way all the time. Do you know when you insist on your own way all the time, it is an expression of the opposite of love? What is the opposite of love? It's a strong word, isn't it? It's a, a mild form of that strong opposite of love when it's me. And you know, we're dealing with a culture that is so focused on itself that it is beginning to disintegrate. Because if all that you have is yourself, we become atoms instead of molecules. And to survive, we have to connect. That is absolutely necessary. Hey, just keep going through the list. This is, I, this is a powerful review, a, a test of our own hearts. How, how about this? Love is not irritable or resentful. Okay, okay. So I've got a personal... Pete Lilback is not irritable or resentful. Do you know what resentful is? It's feeling something again. Did you ever notice how you've already addressed something and it's long gone? Something triggered, that emotion comes flying back and you're ready to tear somebody apart. I thought, I dealt with that. Well, somehow it came back. Resentment. Yes, that's not love. And there are many things that we resent. There are many things that keep us stirring and churning inside. And we ought to say, Lord, how does love, how does Christ, how does God, how does the gospel begin to work in my heart so that I'm not irritable, always wanting to just let people know how angry I am or how uncomfortable I am or what I don't like or feeling miserable or angry under the surface. You see, love makes us dive deep into the inmost being of our hearts. Remember, and that's part of the first great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. You've got to go inside and say, why am I so resentful? You know, this is really true a lot of times for younger uh, kids and their parents. You say, look at how my parents let me down or how they hurt me or how they failed me. And this is where the love of Jesus has to come into our lives. There's something greater than that. This is where we've got to come to the cross and look at Jesus. Look at the gospel. 
look at God's word and say, Lord, the greatest is not my resentment, but it's your love. But you begin to heal me on the inside. And we keep going through the list. It says, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing. <clears throat> when the bad things in the world are seen, even if it seems like they deserved it. Can we avoid the gloating? Instead, say, Lord, we, we need to seek to do what's right, even in those times when justice must be done. It rejoices with the truth. The truth is often hard for us. But if we love, love and truth are not enemies. They are friends. Paul will say in Ephesians 4, speak the truth in love. And love bears all things. So this particular verse is a great test for us in our family or church or other contexts. Are you willing to bear all things? That is, there's some things you're just going to have to deal with. They're not easy because they can't change. Not in this world. There are some things that that's just the way they are because we're in a fallen and broken world. But in love, I'm going to say, I'm going to bear up under that. You know, I'm, it's, it's kind of like those of us that live in the, the Northeast. We say, winter's coming. Now, maybe some of us have the joy of living sanctified lives down in southern Florida in the winter. You know, I, I don't <clears throat> criticize God's blessings on anybody. But some of us don't get to do that. And we say, you know what? I'm not going to grumble all winter. I may not like it, but... This is where I am. I bear with it. And I'm going to overcome it because the love of Jesus is in my heart. How about that? Uh, that's a great test for our attitude and our spirit. Uh, love believes all things. There are times when the Bible gives us truths. We say, I can't believe it. We say, Lord, I love you enough to believe that which I don't understand. We sang this song, He gives and takes away. It's easy to believe in God's love when He gives. It's awfully hard to believe God is loving when He takes away. But love says, Lord, I'm going to believe You today. I don't understand it. I don't feel good about it. It hurts. I'm grieving. But You're bigger than everything, and I am going to love and trust and believe You. It says, love hopes all things. One of the great things that every Christian has as we go through the adversities and heartaches is to have a hope that's not like the world's. The world really only has a hollow hope. Maybe there's something better that will come if I just hold on. The world's hope is always uncertain, but the Christian's hope is absolutely sure. It doesn't mean that this moment is without its heartache and pain. But what that hope says, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. That is the sure and certain hope of the resurrection that we hold on to. And that is why we can endure all things. There is an endurance that just is unique to those that know the love of God and live it out. So we must conclude in our study today, and I think we might ask, well, 
what do we do if we live this way? Well, first of all, I think we should not reserve 1 Corinthians 13 for just weddings. I think it's something we should read just about at least once a week, if not more often. Say, how am I doing? This should be one of the epicenters of your spiritual life. If it is really true, this is the greatest gift, then why are you wasting time on secondary things? So we need to say, Lord, help me to love because you love so much. Now, this doesn't mean theology is not important. It, you love the truth. But truth and doctrinal fidelity without love becomes cold, creedal orthodoxy that is going to die. Love without truth becomes mere sentimentality that doesn't have any direction. But it's love founded in the gospel that loves the truth that makes us the Christian church that has endured for these 2,000 years that's worshiping all over the planet. And so tonight, while I will not have the joy of giving the last study, my, my dear brother David Garner will come, returning to your congregation, and we're going to talk or he will talk about the Great Commission. What is the Great Commission? It's Christian love in action. It's saying what we have found in our own hearts, in our own communities, in our church, we want to take to everybody. Islam is going to conquer the world, they think, with the sword. The secularists say they're going to conquer the world through class struggle or economics. Christianity said, "That's not you don't have the greatest weapon. We are going to conquer the world through the love of the gospel. And it continues to be true in the vicissitudes, the problems, the ups and downs of our lives in this world. The love of the gospel is forever. The greatest of these is love. And it, as verse 8 says, never ends. So the main thing, then, is to keep the main thing the main thing. And what is the main thing? The greatest gift, which is to see God's love in action in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the joy of uh, taking some time to study your word afresh, to try to apply it to our lives and to our hearts. Would you please forgive us where your love is absent and missing? where our loss of love is evident in our relationships. And perhaps for that one who's never known the love of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord, may they see your love in the cross where you died for sinners. May they see your love in the empty tomb where you've given us life. And may they see that love so deeply that they come to you with faith and hope and will be touched by a love that never ends which is the greatest of all. We ask this through Christ our Lord.